0: Should we hold your kid hostage to the crazy foreign policy of this country or just rich
1: kids? This Week in Common Sense for the last week of October and the first week of November 2019. And the issue this week has been the draft.
0: Yes, two commentaries on the draft. And and, you know, as regular readers of Common Sense and, and viewers of this uh, these videos will know that we've talked a lot about this national commission that Congress set up to look into whether we should have forced national service for young people, heaven forbid, uh, whether draft registration should be expanded to include women, which the courts are going to require that there be equal protection of the laws. So. They either expand it to women, or they have to get rid of it for everyone, which, of course, is what they should do uh, for all kinds of reasons. And if you go to thisiscommonsense.com, there's a there's a pull-down menu on the draft. There's a ton of information uh, about the draft and draft registration and national service and so on. But Elliot Ackerman, who I do not know, but I know his father uh, pretty well because. Uh, his father's a very interesting guy. Was on the board of directors of U.S. Term Limits back in the '90s, um, and co-wrote a book on strategic nonviolent conflict, uh, which is just hits the nail on the head in terms of, you know, if you don't believe in violence to make the world better, what do you believe in? How do we how do we get free in Hong Kong in? You know, uh, Catalonia in Russia, in China, in the United States of America. Unless we can strategically engage our governments nonviolently and change them, so uh, Peter Ackerman's fascinating guy. And of course, Elliot uh, Ackerman um, was a Silver Star winner in in Iraq in the Marine Corps uh fought in afghanistan and won the bronze star and unfortunately got a purple heart um and he's written a number of books very, very thoughtful uh well-educated bright guy um and he wrote a piece in time um that in a sense is uh is pretty crazy and, and you know and doesn't make any sense to me um but it it's kind of like his heart was in the right place sort of because. He's looking for how we get a handle on our foreign policy, how citizens might be able to control it. Now, his solution is that we conscript people into the military so that the public is more, you know, hyper-concerned. Oh, my goodness, uh, this could happen to my kid. It seems to me that we ought to be able to be concerned about war and peace, even without someone holding a gun to our kid's head. And if our government is so out of control that we are so worried why would we hand them our kids as cannon fodder on a silver platter but but in this modern time when of course we're supposed to hate people who are wealthy and who have you know amassed some some wealth in this world his idea is we only draft the children of parents in the top income tax bracket, the top income tax or the top income earners, and uh, now obviously it fails if you if you apply the the Fourteenth Amendment equal protection clause to it. It's uh, it's a terrible idea to like pick out one group in society. That's why it's you know forbidden constitutionally. Um, but it's it's interesting because he's saying hey, the only way we can get a handle on our Congress and our White House and our military is that's under civilian control, but doesn't seem to be under citizen control, uh, is to put the wealthy and the influential in jeopardy. And in essence, to hold their kids hostage. Wouldn't be enough, I guess, to hold middle-class parents hostage, kids hostage. We've got to hold the wealthy folks. We get a better ransom. The truth is, I'm not so sure that that changes the political dynamic a lot, Um, because of course they're going to have different views on what war is good or not so good, and they're going to be both Democrats and Republicans. And I don't think it changes the dynamic. I, I think he is right about, we have a problem that our government's out of control. And, then, and when your government polices the entire globe and is out of control, there's a lot more opportunity for problems. But uh, as I said in my Friday commentary, if you do just a quick arithmetic and look at the 30 years, it's roughly 30 years after uh, World War II, Uh, ended, that we had a peacetime draft. Well, we had Korea and we had Vietnam, both wars in which tens of thousands of soldiers were killed, American soldiers. Um, And I don't think that commanders said, oh, we don't care about life. But I think that there was, manpower was easier to get. And that does have an impact. And if you look at the 45 years since, uh, roughly, I guess it's 46, since 1973, and the draft ended. And of course, when they ended the draft, there were still drafted people in the Army finishing their, their tour. So you could almost argue, it, you know, probably 75 before it was a completely all-volunteer Army. But anyway, I don't know the exact date. But, but the interesting thing is less than, in, in that 30 years you had Korea and Vietnam, you had over 90,000 American soldiers killed in overseas wars, Um, and in the 45 years after the draft was ended, we've had less than 10,000 people killed. And so even though it's, I think, ridiculous and terrible that any American soldier would be killed in Afghanistan today as that war just drags on and on and on, and they are being killed still, it's very small numbers. And I think that that is, at least in large part, an effect of an all volunteer force to where if you get involved in an unpopular war, you, you know, you can't just hire and hire and hire because people can say, you know what, I'm not walking into the, into the recruiting station. And, and that makes a world of difference. It is a, it is putting a marketplace check, on the way we conduct military operations around the world. And I think that that's a wonderful thing. It is sort of sad that we can continue to police the world as much as we can, because I don't think that that's the right thing to do. And I don't think it's what the American people want. So it's kind of sad that that we're able to continue to do it. But this idea that if somehow we had a draft, the resistance would stop it is it's like these people saw a movie about Vietnam or something and they didn't quite, you know, the movie was only 90 minutes and so they just thought everything happened real quick and there was a draft and then they didn't like the draft and the war ended. That's not what happened. What happened is you had years and years of people being conscripted into the military against their will to go fight and die and, and many of them fighting and dying. And you had people resisting and going to prison and their lives being turned upside down. You had the ability to carry on a war that didn't have public support because the manpower was just coming in by fiat and by force and by jailing people who didn't show up. And, uh, and so, it, you know, you, you really had a situation in which, yes, I think resistance had a a big impact. Resistance to the draft had a big impact in ending the Vietnam War. I don't think there's any question about it. But in a sense, the Vietnam War ended the draft before the draft ended the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War ended in 1975. The draft ended in 73. So it was the experience of Vietnam that caused the public to say, get rid of the draft before the public was ready to say, We've had enough of Vietnam. So you know this idea that somehow to stop the war machine, if that's—and I'm I'm using that loosely—I think sometimes it is a war machine, and I think other times you know it's not. It's a it's a peace and freedom and and let's restore sanity machine. But I think too often it's a war machine, and and if you if your view is that we're fighting and intervening and mucking up way too many places. The idea that giving politicians enough trust to start drafting, conscripting your kids and altering their whole life plan and that somehow that's going to be a limit on politicians is just absurd. Um, but it's, it, you know, people are looking for something and we, we do, you know, I sympathize because I'm looking for something too. Uh, to, you know, I don't think our foreign policy. Uh, gets thought through by the public because they're never encouraged to think through everything. There's so much, as we've talked about before, so much secrecy about everything. Oh, we just can't know because they won't let us know. And there is this uh, bias in the media uh, that we've talked about many, many times, and we're going to talk about it one more time at least because it's worth talking about. Donald Trump has been popular across every television network in this country one time. And that's when he bombed Syria because he accused them, and all the intelligence agencies said, hey, they use chemical weapons. Now, if you look at the reporting since then, oh, there's plenty of evidence that maybe it wasn't Assad's government that used the chemical weapons. Um, so it's, it's, but the media, you know, uh, what's his name? I'm going to forget his name. Darn, uh, uh, the communist, <laughs> this is how I know him. Ah, uh, Vance Jones. He at one point in his life may still said he was a communist. And Van
1: uh, Van Jones.
0: Van Jones. What did I say? Vance. Vance. Yeah, I was giving him extra letters. He. Uh, but he came out and said, you know, Trump looks presidential, and and I don't see Van Jones as like a big hawk, but all of a sudden Trump is presidential, and so we we have this constant push, and of course. There's billions and billions and hundreds of billions of dollars at stake and over time trillions of dollars in all the contracts and all the, that we're, we're doing around the world militarily and otherwise. And, uh, and so, you know, of course, there's a built-in constituency for that. But I think the American public is completely shut out of foreign policy. We don't have any check on our, on our government there. And we're desperately looking for some check. And, um, you know, I think it's it's a bad enough situation that, um, you know, I I could easily, if Tulsa Gabbard got the um, nomination, Democratic Party nomination, I could see myself voting for, her, even disagreeing with, I've got to disagree with 80 to 85 percent of her policy positions. But on the one issue that Nobody seems to raise very often. Trump sort of has and and sort of hasn't. It's been kind of a mixed bag. But but it, w- one of the most refreshing things about Trump is the idea that maybe somebody would question whether we need to be in Syria or, or wherever. Uh, not always excited about how he goes about things, but but that's been refreshing. But she's the only one on the Democratic side who is speaking forcefully to that issue about. Which regime change wars and constant fighting and and militarism around the world and, uh, and i I'd be very interested to see her do do well and uh, and give people some alternative and it would be interesting, you know Hillary Clinton has alleged that she might uh, be a Russian you know uh, asset and all this different crap but um, but it would be interesting to see her run as a third party, if she doesn't get the Democratic nomination, because I think there are not a ton of people who, you know, so many people are locked into the, you know, the red team's the devil, the blue team's the devil. um, And so they're going to vote for the other team. But I think she might pull a lot of votes because she would be the only candidate speaking forcefully to our foreign policy around the world of constant ongoing regime change, where even... The peace candidate, Mr. Obama, comes in with the idea of getting out of Iraq and out of Afghanistan, and not only are we in both countries still, but decides to go topple Gaddafi in Libya. Just an insane play, and then intervenes in Syria and intervenes in a feckless way. Um, But I would wouldn't have intervened at all. And so you know, we it has been under Republican Democrat the the. Peace candidate as much as the war candidate, that we have had a foreign policy of will will knock over any government anytime we feel like it, and uh, and people may not remember, but one of the things that I still sticks in my craw about uh, Obama and the Libyan uh, foray is that he purposely it seems to have been purposely that happened. Everybody knew about it. It's not like it wasn't in the papers. But the, under the War Powers Act, which I see as a congressional giveaway of power to the executive branch, but the executive branch has grown so arrogant with its power to make war whenever it wants, sees the War Powers Act as some sort of restriction on their power. Um, and, and Obama had to, within a 30 days, 60 days, I don't have the exact uh, number, but it legally has to report to Congress, maybe 90 days. Uh, within that period, and specifically waited until a few days after the deadline to inform Congress about it. Now, you know what kind of reporting we'd get on that if if Mr. Trump was doing it. And well, we should get reporting saying what is going on here because he's not fulfilling what what legally he's supposed to fulfill. Uh, but hardly a peep about about Obama doing the same thing. And so this this idea of we do whatever we darn well please, and not only Congress be damned, but most of all the public doesn't even get to discuss the issue. That's got to change, and uh, and that's why, even though Tulsi Gabbard is a uh, big government person, it would be interesting to see someone running for president, uh, and to have a president who would question even more forcefully uh, the military-industrial complex and and the foreign policy of. We'll do whatever we want around the world, police, and also regime change.
1: You alluded to uh, being informed about uh, what the president is doing in foreign policy matters. The Congress, it was a long wait time, a lag for Obama. But you know, Pelosi and the company were objecting the very next day that they hadn't been informed on time. So that's a rather interesting double standard. Is that not possible? Well, I
0: mean, if, if there weren't for double standards, there wouldn't be any standards in Washington. So, um, you know, it's interesting because I've, and part of me kind of says, it's good to, for a president to be sharing that his uh, authority and so on, that's how you build a, a better government and so on. And, um, uh, and so I, in that way, I think you could certainly make the argument he sure should have let them know, uh, and in a timely basis. Now there was a lot about Russia was told, but not Democrats in the Congress. And of course, that's because Democrats in the, in the Congress don't have any territory that they hold militarily that we had to fly over and Russia does. So, but, but the other part of that is that Washington leaks horribly and i'm i'm glad about a lot of those leaks and anybody who's listened and read knows i'm glad about a lot of those leaks uh because i want to know what's what the government's doing and i think they're way too secretive but at the same time those like right now they're, they've been holding the impeachment inquiry behind closed doors and selectively leaking things so that it's you know it if you're getting information that's good but if you're only getting selected parts of the information that's bad and and the media goes along with that and, and of course makes sense they're trying to get information they're trying to get the scoop and publish it that's what we want them to do but it it when the media is partisan it creates a very interesting situation and i think that the price if I were to calculate the price Trump is gonna pay for not informing the Democrats, it will be exactly zero.
1: Mr. Elliot Ackerman um, has an interesting idea politically, or maybe it's not, uh, instead of tax the rich, it's conscript the rich. Uh, does this have any play, you think, for Democrats, or is this just is that, is that his idea here, or what, what's going on? It seems weird. Well,
0: this idea, um, and I think I think this part of it, <clears throat> you know, I think he, you know, he's a very sophisticated guy. He knows this is going nowhere, uh, and that it can't constitutionally, I think, go anywhere. But I think there's a lot of people who like the idea. I think that um, while I look at it and I think that's a really offensive thing to, to suggest. And I don't think it was trying to be offensive, but it, it offends me when some part, including rich people, you know, if a rich person is a rich, bad, evil person, then don't like them because they're bad and evil. And not because they're rich. And if they got rich because they did bad, evil things, well, then they don't deserve to be rich, of course. And you can dislike them all you want. But this idea that somehow people who have more are bad and we can just take their stuff or take their kids um that's not a healthy thing for society and it it's never been you know uh the whole class warfare angle has never really worked very well politically, but I see again and again talk about income inequality i i was um I've started to write something uh several times about all the different uh, protests around the world, because there have been a number of stories in Washington Post, other places, about the protests. And uh, you know, there are protests in, in Chile, uh, where you know, they raised the, the transportation fees, and you know, protests in, in Catalonia, where they put people in jail for holding a referendum about separating from Spain. They've got the protests in Hong Kong about encroaching uh, you know, to Chinese totalitarianism on, on what's supposed to be two systems for at least a few more years before totalitarianism takes over. There's been these different uh, things going on in, in Iraq. You know, we've saved Iraq. Well, Iraq's, uh, there's hundreds of people who've been killed by, by the soldiers there. Is that, is that the U.S.? I mean, we do seem to be behind their government, and their government's killing people on the, in the streets. So, uh, but, but there doesn't seem to be any, any news about it as if we have any role. And it seems like we do, but, but I, I digress. The, uh, but, but all of these different protests, the way it's been kind of framed is there, it's anger at inequality, income inequality, and political hopelessness
1: combined.
0: And I think that that's just complete bunk, just complete bunk. Like, for instance, in Chile, where uh, or Chile, uh, uh, I never can say it right anymore. It's like, for years, I had, it, I had it down, and now it's like I never can. I'm so terrible. But anyway, uh, um, but there, it is all kind of economic, but they're not mad because some people can afford the fare and they can't. They're not mad because rich people get cheaper fares. They're mad because the fares are going up and they can't afford to do it. So it is anger at economic circumstances, which of course are tied to political circumstances, but I don't know where you get the income inequality. I don't think the problem in the United States is income inequality. I think when when someone is angry that they don't have what they think they should have, you can always then point to someone who's got something and try to blame them, but you want a system in which you can get that not where you can steal it from somebody else. So, you know, I just think, and again, it's the media creating the narrative. In other words, they're not bringing us the news. They have their narrative that they spin every day and then they, they stick in the news where it fits the narrative, and if it doesn't quite fit it, then they you know shave off a little bit and make it somehow fit. and uh, And you look at Hong Kong, um, you know there's not one bit of angst in Hong Kong about income inequality in terms of the protests. they're not there like, you know, don't extradite us to that totalitarian, you know hellhole uh, you know complete civil liberties devoid country China and we really think some people have more money than they should and we should get some of that that's not what the chants are um and so this whole idea uh or or spain um income inequality catalonia is the wealthiest area in spain so they're not they're not protesting income inequality they're saying we want our own our own culture our own language and and frankly being ignorant of a lot of their history until reading something a few weeks ago, I didn't really have kind of the full knowledge of, uh, you know, they've gone through a bunch of stuff under Franco, you know, uh, clamping down on speaking the, their language and customs and other things. And this is, we see this in China with the the Uyghurs and, and in Tibet and so on, uh, where Folks are just, you know, it's it's ethnic cleansing in a sense. Part of it is brutal ethnic, ethnic cleansing, but part of it is also a little less brutal brainwashing ethnic cleansing in a sense, trying to destroy somebody's culture. And the truth is that happened in the United States with the Indians to a degree. That's what the law is saying that, uh, that you couldn't teach slaves to read and write. And I think there were laws after slavery ended that you couldn't teach, uh, you know, black Americans to read and write. What was that about? That's about where we want to destroy your culture. And, um, and you know, it's just, it seems to me that, that the world, we look at some of these different, um, places and, and the, you know we're not getting better. It's getting scarier, um, and and it's not as if I look to the United States to solve all of these problems. But I think we do. You know I think we have served some good purposes in the past, mainly by being an example, and uh, and I think we've really failed in the last few decades. Even more, I mean we failed other times. Vietnam was a failure in terms of 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 you know, being on the wrong side in a war and, and not not that the other side was so wonderful, but, you know, when there's a war and we should learn this, when there's a war where no side is right, that's a good war to skip and wait for another war to come along. You know, it just, and so I think we have set a set a poor example. And I think we've made it easier for folks to to look at China and say, well, maybe that's, you know, not such a bad deal. Can't really trust the U.S. We can't, you know, and those things, I think, make a difference. It's the, I go back to Reagan's uh, tear down this wall. It was easy, I think, to look at the U.S. and look at all the terrible, dumb, sometimes evil things that we did, that we've done throughout our history Um, in in invading countries when we shouldn't have and and, in fixing intelligence to be able to, You know, for the Gulf of Tonkin or for for whatever. Um, But when Reagan pointed out, Mister Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It was stark and it was clear, and I think that that statement was was gigantic historically, and it and it shows that you know it seems sometimes kind of trite that well you know the good guys will win the hearts and minds, but. The truth is, wars are won by hearts and minds, and it's worth winning them. And it seems like that so often our foreign policy is about somebody making a buck um, or some deal somewhere, and not about winning hearts and minds. And I think the American people, they we've got no dog in the fight of you know which product some country's going to buy or not buy. we We want them to buy American products. But but we're not waking up every morning going we gotta invade some country to open up some some new market. That's not how American you know, free enterprise works. And uh, and so you know we we have to it seems to me get some handle on our on our government because outside our borders um, they don't behave like we want them to behave and that's a, a serious problem. Yeah, a lot of times you know it's hidden. The you know we hear about some some court case years after the fact, but uh, but you know there's blowback when when we do stupid things around the world, and uh, we're a lot better country than that.
1: One thing Ackerman doesn't mention uh, in his desire to conscript people to get people to change their ideas on what we should be doing overseas—that rather bizarre chain of logic, which I've heard before. It's not the first time we've heard this. No, no. But one thing it doesn't mention is the fact that the uh, military is going as fast as they can to drone warfare. And the future is not with grunts on the ground. And so really conscripts probably in the future won't be uh, on the ground. They'll be behind a booth somewhere on the other side of the planet pushing joysticks. Well,
0: and that's so much of it has. That's exactly right. And and it's why also the, the whole idea of drafting a bunch of people into the military, it's like they, again, they watched too many World War II movies and it seemed like such a great time. And, and you know, if you were a young person who went from the rural farm somewhere in Kansas and, and next thing you're in Tokyo and then you're here and you come home and you're a hero. And I mean, it's and I'm here, look, I'm a kid born 15 years after the end of the war. And I watched those movies and, you know, and I'm inspired by what we did and we stormed the beaches and, you know, it's, it's, um, it's easy to kind of think we need to restore that sort of, you know, that sort of patriotism and togetherness. And, and it's like, be careful what you wish for. We don't want to repeat World War II. We don't want to we don't want to have to conscript um young people and change all their lives. You know the the goal of our government shouldn't be to give us these incredible experiences of the world nearly toppling over, but to give us very calm experiences if that's what we want, where we live our own life and where if we want a whole lot of excitement in our life we got to figure out how to have that excitement. We got to find our own roller coaster. You're not providing it for us. Uh, you know, it, so it, it, it does seem to me that there's a lot of that. We need something to something big, you know, and, and the Green New Deal, they're always talking about. It. It's like a new Marshall Plan or bigger than the Marshall Plan. It's like we need a World War II attitude or something. This is this is ridiculous. This is, and the truth is, one of the things that years ago I did a, a, uh, I, I got into some of the different uh, jazz tunes of the 30s and 40s, especially during the war. And, uh, and I got into some of the different speeches. I, was, I made a little tape for my dad who was very into history and, and World War II and stuff. And one of the things that I found amazing was how calm. FDR and Churchill were, and part of that calmness was that they did have real confidence. They were a lot bigger than Germany. I mean, in other words, they understood that strategically, they're positioned in a much better. They're going to win the war. I mean, when when Churchill's saying we'll fight them on the beaches, and he's not just hey I'll just wing it and hope for the best. He knew that the British Empire was a pretty big thing, and they had America there. You know, in the wings, and and uh, and so on. We don't want our leaders to be running around all the time saying the sky is falling, and we need to we need to change everything. Government needs to take over all the industries because, and and somehow that if we have to get rid of all fossil fuel jobs and create all these new ones, no big deal. It'll be better. You'll love it. I mean, this is insanity, and yet. It's talked about as if if you don't if you don't agree you must be sticking your head in the sand. Um, so I, I I think any idea that starts with hey this will be like World War II or some other catastrophe because that's what World War II was it was a catastrophe that ended about it, you know ended thank God and ended better than it could have but a catastrophe. No thanks. Michigan has long been a term limits battleground, even though they've never quite put a, a weakening of term limits on the ballot or a repeal from really the first. In 1992, uh, there were three states that were, that were hard fought over, over term limits, so lots of money coming on the no side. They pretty much realized they couldn't beat the, the issue. But they thought maybe in these states they could, which was Washington, Michigan, and Arkansas. And we won in the, all those states and every state where it was on the ballot—14 of them—in 1992. But Michigan has a uh, three-term, six-year limit in the House, two-term, eight-year limit in the Senate, um, and they have—and their lifetime limits, which to me are the the way to go. Don't let them keep playing games about it um there are other people it's a big state there's not seven people in michigan there's there's millions so anyway it it uh it's been a contentious uh as in every state because the legislature hates it and because the michigan chamber of commerce which has a lot of power uh and a lot of influence in that legislature has continually been behind the scenes scheming and raising money to to look at different ways that they might try to gut term limits. And now they've brought in this left-wing group that's gotten a good bit of union funding and did a redistricting reform, which seemed to me to be, I don't, I don't know that it's the perfect reform, but was a good reform, you know, better than better than just letting legislators pick their own districts. Um, and so they got some grassroots credibility even though they raised a ton of money from a lot of the usual suspects, uh, it gave them more grassroots credibility, especially with the media, which is on the left, always, it seems like, in the country. Um, and so the the legislators and the chamber are kind of salivating that they can suck in, you know, here here's this liberal group with some credibility as a grassroots group that does reform, Having secret meetings with the Chamber of Commerce and the Republican Senate President and the Republican Speaker of the House. And why wouldn't they all get together? Because they're all about let's carve up the state so we can get what we want. Any decent grassroots group would never be in a meeting looking at how can we somehow hoodwink the people. And what they're looking to do is can we come up with some sorts of reforms that sound good that we can weaken term limits enough that it it won't ruin the deal? In other words, we know the public likes term limits. We don't care. We don't care what the public likes. We as politicians hate term limits. And so we gotta find some way to get these pesky voters to support a change. And so they'll dangle all kinds of things. In Arkansas, years ago, and, and uh, the, this is common sense, we did quite a number of commentaries about what happened down there, but they, they put a measure on the ballot. It came from the legislature, and it was, the title was completely convoluted and tried to make people think it established term limits when it more than doubled the limit. But it also banned gifts from lobbyists. Well, that was a lie. But the title said it banned gifts from lobbyists. Now lobbyists buy meals all the time for virtually the entire legislature. So you know, it, it complete lie. It set up an independent commission to deal with pay raises. Well, the independent commission, a majority of the members are picked by the legislature. So the legislature, after this independent commission got going, they got a hundred and fifty percent pay raise. So this is the sorts of things that the Michigan legislature and this left wing group uh, whose name is Voters Not Politicians, meaning politicians, not voters. But they and the chamber are scheming up. Years ago, the uh, when they were trying to weaken term limits in Los Angeles, the League of Women Voters there combined it with another issue and was very open about, well, we could never get the voters to vote to weaken term limits. Unless we gave them something, but that's that's their attitude. What can we? How can we negotiate with the voters so that they get a little something and we get a little something? And if you believe that legislators don't aren't supposed to be working for the voters, then that wouldn't seem so crazy. But it really, it's it's kind of like you know if you hire someone and then they come and negotiate, you know, just what they're going to do and not do, and and that's. You know that's the government we have this is commonsense.com monday through friday every day a daily commentary some common sense about something hopefully and on the weekend a video saturday and sunday so no day does a person in america have to wake up without common sense